0: Welcome to our initial podcast where we discuss very relevant and topical issues uh, in the news today. I've got a couple of folks um, on the More Insights and Strategy team, uh, Will Townsend and Anshell Sag. Guys, why don't you introduce yourselves?
1: Hey, Mark. Uh, Will here. So for the firm, I cover wireless infrastructure, carrier services, and enterprise networking. Great.
2: And I'm Anshel Sag. Um, I cover... A lot of the consumer things that we do, um, I cover smartphones, PCs, gaming-focused, um, and I also cover AR and VR, as well as um, wireless communications, specifically 5G and Wi-Fi.
0: Great. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for taking the time to join us today for the podcast. Lots of things going on in the news uh, today, even um, especially this week. Um, and I can't resist teeing up the first topic that I think is on everyone's mind there's already been a lot of uh, coverage about it in the news but I've got to get uh, the opinions of my uh, illustrious partners here so let's talk a little bit about Mark Zuckerberg's congressional testimony and and just in general I guess the uh, the Facebook issue uh, privacy issues that the company is facing so let me turn to Anshell and get his perspective on first of all how do you think Mark did in um, in front of Congress
2: so, I think he actually did pretty well, and I think part of the reason why he did pretty well is because um, I feel like the, congres- the congressional um, members were not necessarily well-prepared. Um, I think that their staffers tried to you know, propose questions that would be um, contentious. But the reality is is that because of a lack of education from our our elected representatives they weren't able to ask the really hard questions and most of the questions that were asked um, were either deflected fairly effectively or didn't really get to the root of the issue and ultimately i think you know facebook and mark zuckerberg did a pretty good job of preparing for this and He didn't come off necessarily as flustered, um, but there were definitely some people who, um, you know, made fun of some of the things that happened during his appearance. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I think, you know, it it could have been much worse. Um, And I think that overall was handled quite well. And I think there's still some serious issues that need to be addressed. But I think someone else needs to be in charge of asking these questions. Maybe we need somebody who oversees these kinds of things that actually has the knowledge, because right now it doesn't seem like our elected representatives do.
0: That's very interesting. I mean, my takeaway on it was I I agree with Anshel. I think that uh, he actually did a pretty good job. He didn't, um, you know, if you recall a few years ago, he appeared in front of Walt Mossberg and Kara Swisher at at Recode, and uh, it was kind of the perspiration um, interview where, I mean, sweat was really, was literally dripping from his face. So from that regard, I think he was very well prepared. He was very deferential, which is, I think, what they were trying to achieve. Um, uh, and uh, the only thing that I, that I struggled with, and I, I agree with Anchel's comments, is that when you have an, an audience of older politicians, and many of them were very old who some of them probably don't even use Facebook, even though Facebook skews to an older audience. They were just kind of spoon-feeding questions they were were getting from their staffs. The one thing that I was particularly um, curious about is that there was not a lot of pressure placed upon Zuckerberg Zuckerberg on uh, explaining whether they would change their business model. You know, meaning that, uh, actually, you and I spoke about this a few weeks ago, in that if they were to offer some type of you know, a uh, complete opt out mo- model where you paid, let's say, $40 a year, you know, something that was very reasonable. And you, you couldn't participate in any ads, they couldn't scan your messages for keywords to do digital advertising on. Um, you know, it was a complete lockdown. You were really using the tool purely to communicate with other people. I really think that would probably hit them in a very negative way, because I think a substantial portion, not all of them, but I think a a very significant portion of their user base would flip over to a a paid model, and the the math doesn't work. You would see profitability probably drop dramatically. So I'm I'm really surprised that they didn't, because when they got, there was a, I forget which senator asked the question, but he kind of deferred, he deferred a lot of those questions. You know, he really didn't want to get into the meat of it because certainly I don't think they want to do that. I don't think that I think that you'll have to put a gun to their heads, frankly, to for them to change their model uh, to anything that they have today. So, Will, what are your thoughts?
1: No, I agree. I mean, you and, and Ansel both make some really salient comments. You know, another, you know, I watched the live feed as well. And a senator, another senator proposed an interesting uh, measure. You know, why why not prevent um the targeting and scraping of data you know for minors so you know you can get a facebook account when you're 13 so his proposal was you know until you turn 18 for those for those individuals for those minors you know you know do that as well so i think i think that would show you know some some compromise from uh, mr zuckerberg if he if he did something around you know kind of uh, addressing the 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 minors and i think to your point mark you know Offering an option where where people could pay, um, but completely opt out and you know um, not not participate in the scraping and the and the data you know in the ad targeting that sort of thing, I think you know that would I think that would address a lot of concerns.
0: I, I think it would address a lot of concerns. The, the challenge you have is that I can I you know I, I haven't climbed into their financials, but I guarantee you, and anshul might could have a thought. Yeah. might have a thought on this. They, they let's say they were able they would were going to charge. Uh, a person fifty dollars to be, be in a complete lockdown, privacy-oriented type of model. I guarantee you that if you're an active user on Facebook, meaning that you access it, you know, multiple times during the day, which many, many users do, they make a lot more than fifty dollars per person, you know, per Facebook user. Sure. And it, it would be hard yeah. for them to make up that revenue. I mean, Anshell, what are your thoughts from that, from the business model angle?
2: I don't think their ARPU is you know fifty dollars per user because um, they do have billions of users. Um, but I, I would say that um, I think the biggest threats to their business model are limiting themselves in terms of overall population. Um, so not having you know people under the age of 18 that's that's a problem, right because those are future users. You want you want young users so that you have growth, Um, which is why, you know, things like Instagram are so popular are still are so popular is because the youth are on it. Um, and the other thing is, is data scraping and data gathering is core to their business. And any limitation in that, of that is going to be a limitation of their business's profitability. And I think ultimately this could have all been prevented if Facebook had been, um, more, protective of their data that they gather and basically making it harder for companies to actually use the data that Facebook gathers. So instead of Facebook giving them the information, they give them the data, which I think is a mistake. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why I think you have companies like Google who are extremely protective of their data. And this isn't an issue for Google because they protect all their data. They give you access to the information, but you don't get to touch the data. And that's the difference. And I think Facebook made that mistake,
0: and mm-hmm. now they're paying for it. Yeah, That's an interesting observation, an interesting observation. And you know, and as I, you know, I've mentioned to both of you before, you know, the area of, of, of coverage that I have, and it's a segment I think that's very, very interesting, um, is that what you're starting to see on the market today are these brand-new smart home security solutions uh cherry is a good example i had a meeting yesterday with lighthouse or another, another startup in the uh, bay area that has a really interesting product that is uses a time of flight sensor um, that uh pr- you know provides tremendous data on the uh, activity that goes on inside the house and the reason why this is kind of relevant to the conversation we're having is that you're going to see a wave of these products over the next several years not with simple home security products which is are kind of binary in nature you know that when you come home at night it knows it's a, a body or an object past a um, sensor and something happens these new home security 2.0 solutions will be using machine learning and smart algorithms and all kinds of new capabilities that 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 are derived from these highly you know very high resolution sensors that are now coming to market that you'll be able to detect you know um, with specificity hey will Townsend or Anshal Sag you know walked into my house it can actually identify who you are um, and it's got some great you know promise you know products like that uh, frankly you know if you for you know people who are you know the elderly that are living in place in people's homes, for example, you want to be able to monitor a situation where um, you want to make a distinction between a dog walking past a sensor and something or, or someone falling out of their bed, for example, and you get an alert based on that. So there's really some great promise in those type of capabilities, but it raises a lot of privacy issues in that, you know, is that data going to be encrypted? Where is it going to be stored? Um you know the, the companies are are coming up bringing these products to market you know are they um, being managed by um, uh... personnel that are have the best interest of people um, who are going to be using the products are they being funded by you know entities outside the united states and not your typical um, you know uh... venture capital uh... funding um, uh... points so i think those are the kind of things that uh... you know that we're gonna have to really start to grapple with as these products come to market, because I can I can assure you, I saw this lighthouse solution yesterday and it was very, very cool of some of the capability it can do. But uh, these privacy issues are not going to go away. And I think that, you know, from a Facebook standpoint in the testimony, I think it was entertaining television, certainly. But I, I don't think we got any clo- any um, closer to closure on um, on the, the, the thorny issues that were raised. But l- let's talk a little bit about, though, another issue that I know that's close to Anshel's heart. And that is the rumors over the last couple of weeks of um, Apple potentially jettisoning, jettisoning uh, Intel uh, for processors in their products. Now, it's, it's really rumors uh, so far. I think it was a Bloomberg report that brought this information to the forefront, and Apple hasn't confirmed anything. But I'd like to get Anshell's perspective on that.
2: Sure. Um, when it comes to, you know, Apple jettisoning Intel, this has kind of been something that's been talked about for quite some time. And the rumor has, you know, come and gone, and without much material difference to what's actually happened. And I think the reality is this has been something that Apple's been working on in terms of software development and enablement for quite some time. And I think ultimately the the final result is that you will probably see Intel start to um, wane in. Apple's overall utilization of their products um, but I think you're only gonna see this happen in a, at least in the short term or initially you're only gonna see it in the lower power products so mm-hmm. I don't think you're gonna see like a MacBook Pro right. switching away from Intel but I think you're gonna see the MacBook Air and the MacBook because you know I've, I've talked to some people who have been running benchmarks and you know some of the software that they make you know, they test on both iPad and they test on MacBook and mm-hmm. they're like, yeah, it runs faster on the newest iPad than it does on my MacBook. Right. So, you know, there's there's definitely a pro you know, the 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 if you look at the Apple SOC, you can definitely expect to see low power, ultra portable notebooks mm-hmm. probably transition to Apple relatively soon. It just comes down to the software at this point. Um And then I think that maybe in the long-term future, it's possible more high-power Apple products could go to Apple SOCs. But just because of the the, the scale of Apple's business and the way it works, it doesn't really make financial sense for Apple to invest in new ARM SOCs for higher-end processors. If the laptops like the MacBook Pro and their desktops like the iMac are so low volume relative to the iPad and to the um, iPhone that it just that it doesn't amortize itself across volume like it would on these higher volume products. Mm-hmm. So I, I just don't see Apple f- seeing a financial reason to switch anything that's really high power, high performance, away from Intel.
0: Right. Well, you know what's interesting is that, uh, actually you're, you're right about one thing, is that the, 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 the pure revenue impact to Intel... You know, under your scenario, is is really probably not that substantial. It's it's a prestige hit, probably in the media. You know that will probably um, over exaggerate the, the the revenue loss that even Intel might appreciate if something like this were to happen. But, you know, the the thing that to me is interesting about this is, you know, Apple looks at the Apple's your typical American company. They take a very long view of some of the technology decisions they make. And, you know, and the you know, there's been a lot of talk about merging the iOS code base plus Mac OS and if you do that, you can get app, iOS applications to run on the desktop. And certainly you know, I think a lot of users would benefit from that if that were to fall out of this, you know, decision them to do that there certainly would be a, a boon for developers because developers don't like to write you know an application for multiple different um operating system platforms so that might even fall out there might be some benefits uh, that that come out of that as well so it'll be interesting to see that um the way this this kind of plays out do, do you think on shell that there's a chromebook uh... defense Uh, component tied to this maybe the reason why uh, Apple wants to do this is that they as kind of a defense mechanism against you know the growing sophistication and the growing um, capabilities of Chromebook based um, notebooks what what are your thoughts connected to that element of the discussion
2: I think from what I can see here from what I've seen in the market when Apple announced their um, what's it called when they announced their iPad for education Mm-hmm. It seemed like everybody's response was a Chromebook. So I'm not sure Apple needs a response to the Chromebook. Maybe that education iPad was their response to the Chromebook. Right. Um I'm not entirely sure, but I don't see them building a laptop that's low cost. Mm-hmm. Uh because once again, you know, it's a lot easier to build a low cost tablet and say, OK, you know, we sell this SOC 100 million times a year. We can do this, build this SOC relatively cheaply. But if they built a separate product out for education, it's going to be harder unless they have volume. Um, so I think, you know, that's why you see them using this iPad as their education solution, maybe their 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 Chromebook answer, because it's, you know, utilizing their most efficient Um, supply chain.
0: Mm. Interesting. That's very, very interesting. So let's uh, shift gears to um, a topic that I know is near and dear to Will's area, and that is 5G, which he obviously covers uh, very uh, extensively uh, for more insights and strategy. Um, and I know he wants to talk you, you probably have, you have some very very interesting comments on what's happening in Europe related to 5g but let's just get, get an overview of your thoughts and just some 5g in general and how things are going well
1: Well, you know, so I recently uh, published an article on Forbes and you know Anshel and I typically tag team on a lot of this as well as uh, our areas of focus um, are are shared at times, but you know, Mobile World Congress, um, all of the, well, if we talk, start with the U.S., all of the U.S. carriers announced very, very bold plans, you know, around 5G. Surprisingly, you know, Sprint's been a laggard. They've suffered from, um, you know, network inconsistency from a quality of service perspective. But since Marcelo uh, Clory has been on board, you know, the company has really turned things around. And what's interesting, um, they will actually be, you know, leveraging a massive MIMO technology, they will be first to market. They'll be lighting up three uh, major metropolitan areas uh, later this month into uh, the month of May, and that'll be followed in the fall by three more. And so, um, you know, very, very aggressive, you know, timelines there. Certainly AT&T and, um, you know, T-Mobile and Verizon are also uh, announcing plans and and deployment and that sort of thing, but you know, I, I find it's interesting that uh, Sprint appears to have you know a slight lead. That might be in part to their sole focus on mobile 5G, whereas the other carriers are 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 deploying a, a mix of both fixed and mobile, and fixed really for the application of that last mile to the home for content delivery.
0: hmm Now, now, and so related to the the, the Europe piece. Uh, and the slow rollout dimension. Do you think that could change, or do you think that just a fait accompli is that Europe is going to be behind other parts of the world uh, in terms of the way that it gets rolled out?
1: Well, you know, one of the challenges in Europe is that they're still figuring out spectrum, and the auctions are still occurring. And if you know, if you recall, um, the FCC had a huge auction last year. T-Mobile really you know swooped in and. Took a lot of spectrum. Um, Sprint's got a you know already a pretty great position with a wide band of, of spectrum. So Europe is still figuring that one out. Um, the operators over there have also been resident. You know, so they're sort of taking a wait and see approach. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe they're a little more conservative. They 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 want the use cases to prove out the monetization. And as a result, you know, you're seeing very aggressive you know deployments in in the U.S. You're seeing that in China as well. Um, in other parts of Asia, but you know it's interesting that uh, a Qualcomm executive last week sort of came to the defense of the of, of the European region, uh, and you know that that's for obvious reasons because Qualcomm and you know Anshul can can address this because he's, he he uh, covers Qualcomm quite quite extensively. But you know they they have a vested interest obviously because they're providing the silicon and, and you know the radios and those solutions that are that are behind 5G as well. But I did find it interesting that that you know the lead you know for Qualcomm Europe kind of came to the defense of Europe and said you know they're that they're very bullish on on the market and I think that was an attempt to try to pull along you know Orange and, and Deutsche Telekom and Vodafone along. Mm-hmm. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Well, well, here's a topic that I know that Anshel, you have quite a few opinions about. Uh, Will, I'm sure you have some thoughts on this as well. And, you know, over the last couple of weeks, there's been some very high profile accidents uh, regarding self driving uh, cars. And, uh, you know, the, and the, so the question I have for each of you, and we'll start with Anshel is the media overhyping these car accidents? And, and again, I want to be careful not to say that. that um, even when I ask that question, that I'm indifferent to human life, <laughs> human life is extremely important, and we should strive to always, whenever with whatever technology endeavor we take, uh, we uh, undertake, we should be mindful of trying to protect human life. But having said that, are, is the media overhyping what's been happening over the last couple of weeks? So let me—I'd like to get Anshel's point of view on that.
2: Well, I think I think there's definitely it's rare for the media as a whole not to overhype something especially when you know the death of someone is involved um no you know the reality is is that deaths are always an unfortunate reality of the world and um we should always do everything we can to prevent them at all costs and that's why i think that you know we should actually um look back and make sure that we're not overreacting to these crashes, because, you know, tens of thousands of people die every year in car crashes. And I I strongly believe that, you know, self-driving cars are going to help bring that number near zero. And I think the more autonomy we have in cars is only going to make them more safe. And I think, you know, we talked about this earlier um, offline, but, you know, I think A good illusion is is flying, you know, flying is extremely safe because it's mostly autonomous. Mm -hmm. And I think that as we bring more autonomy to vehicles with even more intelligence and more intercommunication between them, like with cellular V2X, um, I think you're going to see some really amazing things happen and people are going to it's going to start saving lives. And I think it'll be very, very drastic and I think it'll be very easy to measure and, uh, you know. I just hope we get there sooner rather than later.
1: right. Well, your thoughts? We, from my perspective, you know Tesla is taking a different approach. they're They're basically building their their self-driving solution from the ground up versus you know leveraging quote unquote industry standard technologies out there. So you know, I believe their learning curve is going to be a little bit higher. It's I believe it's Elon Musk's you know notion to be fully integrated you know, from a supply chain perspective, but, uh, you know, you know, to Angell's point, you know, th- there are, you know, unfortunately, you know, fit, you know, automobile fatalities are, are, are huge. And, you know, the, the benefits of, of self-driving autonomous vehicles, uh, eventually will far outweigh, um, you know, some of these early, these early issues that we're seeing with, with Tesla, mm-hmm. in my opinion, in my opinion.
0: Well, and so yeah, I agree with both of you guys. I, I think the interesting thing people don't recall that when automobiles started to appear on the scene in a mass market type of way in the you know, early part of the twentieth century, there was a lot of accidents that happened. And there was a lot of loss of life, and uh, you know the uh, you know the uh, the industry started to get regulated. The car companies started to get you know more uh, more religion on putting safety features in cars, and it it, it started to get mitigated. So again, I, I hate you know I, I certainly don't want to appear cavalier on it, but I think that when you look at the enormous productivity savings, and to Anshell's point, the massive savings in human life that you're going to see when this gets fully deployed years from now, um, it will be a, a positive and good thing for the world. So I'm I, yeah. I, uh I really think that all of us can agree on that and it's just a shame that sometimes things get overblown
1: yeah Uh, hey mark i'll i'll add one more one more point so with respect to 5g i mean so 5g and iot is really going to help, you know, bring that 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 full reality of autonomous, you know, you know, driving, you know, to to fruition. Mm-hmm. Um, you just you, you need you need the tele- telemetry, you need the sensors, you know, in the roads, you know, right. at at intersections and that sort of thing to enable that. And that's one of the really really big uh, use cases for for the deployment of five G is to support that massive IoT infrastructure. So no, I think with that that maturity that that will become more and more a reality and a safe reality well that's a great point well that uh, i think that does it for us from
0: a time standpoint we're at our um, at our end here for uh, this week's podcast call will and anshel thank you for participating in today's call thanks to our audience please follow more insights and strategy on social media on linkedin facebook and twitter the usual suspects and until next time have a great weekend thanks very much